Most Holy One, furrow our hearts that the ground in which the seed of your word would be scattered would be planted deep. Lord, cut deeply that the roots may go deeply. And Lord, where there is hard soil upon the heart, would you water it and soften it with your grace? And protect that heart which is so hard, O God, that the birds would come and take the seed of your word away, that they might repent and bring their heart to you. In your name, Lord, now open your word, illuminate it, Holy Spirit, that we may know you better. Amen. So, um, if you were here last week, you were here with me as we uh, went through this second half of the first chapter and speaking of God's wrath and our blindness that is intentional and terminal, um, causing me in some ways... Uh, to move into this chapter with the same weighty weight upon my shoulders as a pastor and a exegeter of the Word of God to continue to bring a reality to this Word so that you and I may repent of our hypocrisies that we might draw closer to the cross of Jesus and that for some maybe even know for the first time the gospel. And that is the intent of this morning's message and continues on in our study of Romans from faith to freedom, lessons in hypocrisy, humility, and God's grace. Sort of a part two of where we were last week. There is also a part three, and then it gets a little better. So as I said from the very beginning, hold on. The cross is coming. The weight so much that even as we were reading this morning from the Heidelberg, I forgot the last question, which is this. When we read about we have no standing before God, even our good works can't allow us to be justified before the Lord, it begs the question, does not this doctrine make men careless or profane? And the the catechism says this, emphatically, no, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. That... As we belong to Christ, we have no option but to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. And therefore, it is important that we understand the holiness of God so that we might know the mercy and the grace of God that is implanted in us, His Spirit, that allows us to in our fallen nature, begin to manifest the characteristics of Christ to this world. And thereby, 
being justified, we can stand before the judgment seat of God in the righteousness of Christ. So last week we looked at the condition of all of mankind, all of humankind, that we had a terminal blindness. And that blindness didn't come by God's choosing, but came by our own, by rejecting God continually over and over. And it began, we remember, in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve, our first parents, started the process that continues on to this day of suppressing the truth and wanting God dead in their lives so that they might be their own God. You see, that's the real insult that happened in the garden. It's the same story that Jesus would later tell that we who are familiar of the New Testament of the prodigal son realize that that's what those two boys wanted of their dad. Both the elder brother and the younger brother, their inheritance, their receiving, only came at the father's passing. And what the two sons were really saying to their dad was, we want you dead so that we can have what you have. It's the same sin of Adam and Eve. God, we really we want you dead so that we can have dominion of our own, by our own definitions, by our own power, by our own selves over the world. And in doing so, the spiraling down of this blindness that we stuck our fingers in our own eyes, that we might become corrosively blind, ultimately where the blindness is terminal, that we realized it was only the hope of the cross of Jesus that would give us a new heart so that we might stand in the presence of a holy God. Paul then tells the Romans this in chapter 2. In light of all of that, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. In light of everything from 118 up to the 2-1, therefore, You are without excuse. And he insightfully begins to address the condition of our own hearts as moralists, as people who think that we're good, a litany of how we might bring judgment upon one another and the fallacies of our own excuses. Some of you may remember uh, in your childhood maybe hearing words like this. But you know better. I can hear it echoing from my own childhood when I would be uh, with a group of guys and some of the guys were up to some type of no good. And uh, I was there normally along as normally just hanging out as company. Yeah. And when, when caught in, in the act of something mischievous, won't give specifics, I can remember my dad confronting me and, and me saying, yeah, but I was just hanging out with him. I, I didn't do anything. Only to hear the words, 
but you know better. And really that's what Paul is addressing to us who think that we're better off somehow. Because we have some type of egocentric type of morality about ourselves that allows us to try to take the, the gaze of God's holiness upon us and say, God, but look at Him. Look at her. And in these words to hear God say back to you and I who do that, but you know better. You don't have an excuse. It's the fallacy of all excuses. It's the fallacy of all of our pontificating nature that thinks that we somehow can look down our nose upon other people and our own definitions of morality and begin to accuse them. But doesn't Paul say in Corinthians that we're going to judge the world? We're going to judge the saints. What is, what is he saying now? You have no excuse, O man, every time you judge. For when you pass judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Wait a minute. This is very confusing. On one hand, we're to be judges of the angels. But on the other hand, we're not supposed to judge anybody. This is sort of contradictory. This is really strange. Until you begin to understand what Paul is writing here to the Romans is not the same thing that's being said to the Corinthian church. What Paul is saying to the Romans is a condition of a broken and depraved heart that thinks somehow that you're better than the person sitting next to you. And that there's a part of our hearts that are deceitful and condescending that we think somehow we know better. Somehow we have better. Somehow we get to judge the condition of another person's heart. The other has to do with being redeemed and sanctified and glorified in the day of the Lord's return. We're at that time in glorified minds and eyes and bodies. Yes, we will be over the angels. And yes, we will... judge disputes possibly. I don't don't know exactly how that's going to all work out. But at some level, in our glorified state with Christ, yes, we will. And at another level, even in our redeemed state, we judge in in the circle of the church, in the circle of God's people. We discern between what is good fruit and bad fruit and where does there need to be encouragement. But even in that judgment, it's always gauged with the outcome of restoration and not alienation. But you see what Paul is saying here in Romans to the Roman people is this. Your judgment is alienating. It's there in the way the word in the Greek is really discerned is a Greek word, kronino, which means this, to separate out. And what Paul says is when you do that, when you separate others out based upon thinking that you have some sense of righteousness or moral superiority to someone, you're doing the very same thing to yourself. You're separating yourself out from God because your moral righteousness isn't equal to who God's holiness is. And so when you do that, when you think you're morally superior to someone... And trying to use that as your excuse to stand morally superior in the sight of God, God comes back to you and I and says, your morality is not good enough. You have no excuse. Who are you to look down upon another human being? 
Paul's not talking about discernment here. The idea of you will know a tree by its fruit. What he's talking about is alienation of your heart for someone who's broken. Because you're broken. Sometimes I ask people this question, they get a little offended by it. I've learned I, I have that gift. I don't mean to, it's not intentional. It just comes natural. But the question is this. How do you know what adultery is? When you see it, how do you know what it is? Because it's in your own heart. You can't understand what you don't know. If you know what adultery is, you know it's in your own heart. What about stealing? You know what stealing is. How can you know what stealing is unless in your own heart there's a thief? You see, our corruption, our depravity, depravity makes us believe something about ourselves that's just not true. It makes us believe that we have the ability to stand in our own morality up with God and take His position on the throne and begin to judge other people. And use that. And here's where it gets really messed up. And use that as our standing before the holy, holy, holy judge. I've heard some call it the insanity of sin. That we think in our sinfulness that we can somehow put on our own righteousness by our own morality and stand before God equal to His morality so that we can say, God, look at so-and-so. Look, look, look. Don't look at me because I'm cool. I'm good with you. I've done all the things that are right to do. Look at so-and-so. The one who, you know, I'm bitter at. The one I'm angry at. The one I wish wouldn't be around us. The one I wish would just get out of here. That one. That person, Lord. Don't look at me. I want that person separate and away. Only to hear from the Lord, you deserve to be separate and away also. How dare you think that your morality is equal to my holiness? If you have a God that you can appease with your own morality, your God's not holy enough. And you have a God that's made in your own image. It's the corruption of our depravity. And that corruption causes us to move deeper and deeper into hypocrisy. Jesus would tell us this, that the yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. And yet, how hypocritical for us who have been saved by grace through faith alone to then measure our growth by works. 
I know some of you are uncomfortable. Me too. And I'll come to what do we do with works in just a minute. But let that sink in for just a moment. Try not to go too far from that. It's the same excuse that the rich young man used with Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher. Of course, you remember Jesus' reply. No one is good but God. And sarcastically, in some way, telling the young ruler, you know, you're talking to God here. What must I do to have eternal life? And the rich young man says, look at my works. When it comes to the Ten Commandments, I have done six through ten very well. Let's just ignore one through four. Let's don't bring that up. As though even he had honored his mother and his father perfectly all of his life. (laughs) We who are parents know that can't be true. Even we who are teenagers know that's just not true. No one perfectly honors their father and their mother. Have you never said a crossword to your parents? And Jesus says, well, then you lack one thing. And this is true. I found this to be a consistent point with all who seek to live by a legalistic type of works of morality. Jesus says, sell all that you have then and follow me. And, of course, Jesus isn't saying money is bad. He's not saying wealth is bad. But what he is saying this, that quit depending on yourself. Quit depending on your works. Quit depending on your savings account. Quit depending on your status in the community. Quit depending on your abilities to think that you can achieve anything that would achieve my righteousness and believe in me. Let me be your righteousness. Let me be the good one for you. And of course, you remember the rich young man walked away. But how often do we do the same thing? When Jesus says to our our hearts, to your heart, to my heart, Stop depending on your morality. Stop depending on your idea that you're good. Stop depending on anything in this world and depend solely upon me. Sell all that you have. Give it away. Everything that you have in your own heart that you rely on your own self about, give it away and follow me. Jesus isn't talking about your money. He doesn't need your money. He's talking about your heart. Your condition of life where you place your trust for your own salvation. Oh, the Pharisee in me, the, the legalist in me, the, the depraved part of that remnant of me wants to say, but Lord, don't you know I do all four of commandments really, really good? I haven't even gotten close to scratching the surface on any of the ten. But neither of you. 
And that's offensive to Christians, especially. And especially to those who are dependent upon their own works. But don't you see? God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God's ways are higher than your ways. You and I can't even begin to cross over that gulf. Because our hypocrisy, our legalism, causes us to become deeper in blindness to what Paul would have us say in chapter or in verse eight and nine. But because of your I'm sorry, in verse four, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance? You see, our hypocrisy of our own legalism leads us into the blindness of God's kindness. That's the only place it can lead us. Because if it's dependent upon our works, it's impossible for us to be kind. Because no one else is working as hard as we are. And if it's dependent upon our works, then we get to control other people with their works. Or we judge them and we separate them out out of unkindness. But the Spirit of God says something different. God's not mad. He has wrath, yes. And His wrath is coming for sure. But it's His kindness that says still to this day, in this moment, in this hour, And that pew right now where you are, come. There's time. Come to me. Let me show you my kindness. The heart of God here through the Holy Spirit is calling out to everyone who would hear, anyone who would have ears, I want to be kind to my people. Don't come to me with your excuses. Don't come to me with your works. Don't come to me with anything except your broken heart that I might be kind and mend it so that you might be with me forever. But some people think in their blindness, I don't need God's kindness. I don't need a Savior. You remember the famous words of Ted Turner. Some of you don't remember Ted Turner, but he used to own the Atlanta Braves and had a TV station called TBS. Ted, in his famous quote, was this, If there is a Savior, He doesn't need to worry about me. I don't need Him. And you see what Ted is saying. Ted is saying, I don't need anyone to stand before God in my behalf. I'll stand on my own merit. I'll stand on all of my um, benevolence that I've given out to people. I'll stand on all of uh, the nice things I've done, all the doors I've opened for people. And disregard every time I was judgmental or disregard every time I cheated on my income taxes or disregard when those random thoughts were going through my head, I wish that person would just die. And not realizing his own corruption. But we can't stand before a holy and righteous God 
with that type of record? No matter how wealthy we are, no matter how many good things we've done in human standards, we can only stand before Him in the one good thing, great thing that Christ has done. Giving us His righteousness. Because only God's perfection in the one who is fully God and fully man, only God's perfection can stand the scrutiny of God's holiness. Leads us then to the fallacies of standing in our own arrogance and standing in the cross's truth. Verses standing in the cross's truth. In verse 5 we begin to see this. He will render to each one of us according to his works. To those who were patient and well-doing and seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Jew first, and also the Greek. Well, didn't I just spend 15 minutes talking about how works don't matter? But that's not what Paul is saying. It's not what the Holy Spirit's writing. First thing he's writing about, there is a day. That day is the day of Christ's return, the judge of the universe, in which he will judge all mankind. There is a day coming where every single human being will stand before the throne of Christ to be rendered judgment. Make no mistake about it. Paul even tells us in Philippians, what? That every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Whether you confess it now, you will one day confess that Jesus truly is Adonai, the Lord. But at that point... The confession is compulsory and meaningless to your salvation. It is only a recognition of that which you have suppressed your entire life. But here's what he says. For those who sin... I'm sorry... He will render to each according to his works. To those who are patient and well-doing and seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Don't you remember the words of our Master? Eternal life is this. What? Can you fill in the blank? Remember what Jesus said? Eternal life is this, that you would believe in the one whom the Father sent. There's no eternal life apart from believing that Christ has come to be your justification. And from that, the Spirit of God is, as the Heidelberg says in that, that last part, from that comes forth works of faith, works of the fruit of the Spirit. It's impossible for it not to. If you have truly come to the one to believe in him, then what? The fruit of the Spirit grows within you, does it not? Some days it may look like raisins. Other day it looks like grapefruit. 
But praise God, it's not it's not judged on what you think my fruit is that day or the size of it. It's judged solely upon the mercy and the grace of our Lord who sees my fruit as Christ's fruit. And what is the fruit of this Spirit? Love. Are you growing in love? Some of you are worried, I, I didn't dance for ten whole days. Isn't that pleasing? I never wear makeup to church. Doesn't that make me righteous? I didn't eat chocolate for six whole months. See, God? The question is, are you growing in His love? Look look at this other one here. Patience. Are you becoming more patient? Is your joy growing? What about your kindness? Are these the things that are beginning to manifest in your life? And you can say, well, how does that address the real besetting sins in our life? Because it starts you on a journey of saying, is this besetting sin me loving others well? By me being in control of the sin in my life, does that keep me from loving other people well? Does it keep me from loving my spouse well if I'm addicted to other things? Does it keep me from loving my family well if I'm addicted to drink? Does it keep me from loving my family well if I am addicted to clothing? All of these things go through the the paradigm for the believer of, is this the best way that I can love? Is this the best way for me to be kind? Does this bring real joy to my life and to my circumstances? Because you see, it's incredibly important that I love God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, but also that I love my neighbor. Who's more closer to me than my neighbor than my wife or my children or my cousins? Or my friends at church, my family of the faith, or my co-workers, or my boss, or my president, or that person on the street, or the addict, or the prostitute. I'm not the evaluator of who deserves love. I'm the vessel through whom the love of God comes through. I'm not the judge of mankind. You and I are the discerners of what is the need of the human beings that we come in contact with. You see... If we truly follow Christ, we will truly follow His love. If we truly follow His love, we'll truly want to be like that. If we truly want to be like that, then we will repent and we will begin to manifest His fruit in our life. You see, it's going to be your works on that day 
or Christ's works. You can choose this day which one you will stand in. If you choose to stand in your works without Christ's works as your total covering, you will perish and you will die. His wrath will burn you and consume you. But if, on the other hand, you stand in the works of Christ as your works, you will be as safe as Noah and his family were in the ark when the deluge of God's wrath came upon the earth the first time. And he will deliver you into the new heaven and the new earth. In the 1800s, there would be prairie fires as the people crossed, went across the Great Plains. And the fires sometimes could travel 100, 125 miles an hour. So fast that horses couldn't outrun them. People couldn't outrun them. So what the settlers would do is set the land around them on fire. So it would burn a circle that they could go stand in. And the fire would rage all around them, but because it had no fuel in their standing, they would be safe. Certainly the fire of God's wrath is coming upon the earth. It would be a lie for me to tell you that it's not. But there's a place for you and I to stand. And it's in the righteousness of the heart that was burnt on our behalf to be made holy in him. That because of his holiness, you and I can also be holy. No one is innocent. Calvin would talk about the three uses of the law, and this is the fallacy of non-universal condition. You know what? I'm going to save it. Let me just stop here. Because I want to talk to you just real quickly about the necessities of grace alone. Sola gratia. Another, we talked a little bit about it last week, but to continue on it deeper this week. Some may say, is that you? all you talk about is grace? Well, I just talked about wrath and condemnation for two Sundays in a row. Take note, go listen to the tape. But that is why I talk mostly about grace. Because without His grace, the fire is my destiny. And I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing. You remember the hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, solely to the cross I cling. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Rock of ages, split open for me. Rock of ages, let me hide myself in You. Because I've got nothing. Where do you think the split in the rock comes from except His grace? He's under no obligation to receive a stinking thing from us. But He says, bring one thing. Faith in my grace and I will split the sky for you that you may come and be with me.
solely based on the things that will not burn up his righteousness. Today is the opportunity for many of you to say, Jesus, I will do the opposite of the rich ruler. I will not justify myself before you, but I will ask you to justify me before the Father. You can come this morning into grace alone and know for sure that God will never be angry at you again. Or you can stand alone and wait for the fire. Let's pray.